Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. In chapter 19, Saul's secret plan or secret intention to put David to death uh, becomes less secret as he lets his inner circle of advisors, including his son Jonathan, in on the plan and says, let's kill David. And of course, that puts the servants of Saul um, on mission to go and kill David. That is their task. They're not supposed to ask questions. They're simply supposed to obey the king, which put Jonathan in a really awkward position because Jonathan, you remember, back in the beginning of chapter 18, has actually already covenanted his loyalty and love to David. Remember, Jonathan, in terms of the social order, as the crown prince who would be king, and David as this shepherd from Bethlehem who's kind of rising through the ranks of Saul's armies, Jonathan is the greater. So it's the greater who enters into covenant or brings uh, uh, into covenant the, the lesser. And so Jonathan has, in real humility here, lowered himself in order to bring David into this covenant. And he has sworn allegiance and loyalty and love and, uh, you know, even when he's king someday, if should that be the case? Of course, we know Jonathan's never going to be the king because the, the whole dynasty of Saul was rejected. Uh, but it doesn't seem that Jonathan knows that yet. So Jonathan says, you know, even when I'm king, I will always remember with kindness and to do good for David and, and his house. And so he enters this covenant. And really that covenant between Jonathan and David forms a lot of the backdrop of the drama that unfolds in chapter 20. So in chapter 20, uh, what happens is that um, that David is it comes back to Gibeah, where Saul and Jonathan live, where the court of the kingdom is, uh, and he's he has a secret meeting with Jonathan to ask, why is Saul trying to kill me? And they kind of work out this plan to figure out for sure whether Saul uh, intends to continue this sort of assault on David. And, uh, and so it's all very much just conversations and plans and, uh, between David and Jonathan. And so you need to remember this covenant relationship that they've entered into uh, as we go into the, the story here because it forms the, the backdrop for all of it. And of course, throughout chapter 19, Saul actively sought David's life and four separate times, God protected him through different means, uh, through Jonathan's direct uh, confrontation of Saul at the beginning to say, this is sinful of you to try to kill David, um, at which point Saul, at least for the moment, relented. Uh, from David evo- evading uh, the hurled spear, which seems to be Saul's sort of attack of choice. Um, and then he sent, Saul sent his uh, policemen to David's house to wait out the night and then kill him in the morning. And David's wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, saw, knew, was in on the plan, knew what was happening, and so she helped David escape. And then finally, the most sort of dramatic scene of it all, at the end of chapter 19, 
God intervened directly as Saul sent three groups of uh, his policemen, if you will, uh, to where David was with Samuel. Remember, David had gone into hiding with the prophet. And so group after group after group of Saul's uh, messengers, if you will, uh, come to David and are sort of interrupted by the presence of the Holy Spirit and begin prophesying and are totally incapacitated of not able to carry out what they're supposed to do. Saul himself, after three groups did the same thing, went down there and the same thing happened to him. And he stripped off his kingly robes and he laid naked on the ground in front of Samuel day and night. And uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of a, a, a hysterical scene uh, in general. Uh, but the end result of all that is that Saul is not able to kill David. God is protecting him. And so now, I guess with Saul lying about among the prophets, uh, David has a chance to escape. And so he flees from Ramah, where Samuel was, and returns actually to Gebeah to have a secret meeting, if you will, with Jonathan. And so look at these first uh, few verses. David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, so he's returned to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So David doesn't say, does Saul intend to kill me? I think by this point, he knows, right? It's been, it's been made pretty clear in the preceding chapter that Saul intends to kill him. What David is asking is, why? What have I, what have I done who deserve this? And I wonder if maybe you've ever felt inclined to ask a question like that. Why is this happening? Why is this hardship in my life? Haven't I done the, quote, right things? Haven't I obeyed God? Haven't I done what he's asked me to do? Why then does the king seek my life, as it were? And in some ways, I think it's a fruitless question. There's never a satisfying answer to the why question. Why is this happening? And there's various theological answers that we could give. But for the most part, it doesn't really scratch the itch of what we're hoping to find out. And I think David probably would, would not be satisfied no matter what he heard from Jonathan on this account. We'll find what is on Saul's mind very plainly a little bit later in this chapter, though not within David's earshot. Nevertheless, asking why is this happening is not usually the most fruitful question in the midst of hardship, in the midst of uh, things going awry in your life. We recognize, of course, that God has uh, mysterious and providential purposes behind even the suffering in our lives. We remember the, the words in, in Romans 8, 28, that says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so that sounds... You know, some people get tired of hearing that. Like, of course, God's working all things to good. The good that he's working is in that very next verse, verse 29, where it says that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that he has in mind. It's the good of conforming us to the likeness of Christ. So as we suffer, as we endure hardship, God is working. God is chiseling away the aspects of our life and our character that don't match Jesus. And so, again, probably not as satisfying of an answer as what we might hope. doesn't necessarily soothe the hurting when it's happening. But God is always at work. There's always a deep and redemptive purpose in 
what God is in the suffering and hardship in our lives. And I think that's true for David as well. God is preparing David for the throne and for the challenges that he will face down the road as the king of Israel. So it would have been much cleaner and much easier, of course, for God to say, Saul, you're rejected. David, you're anointed. Now, start. You're out. You're in. It would have been a lot cleaner. But David would not have had the, the training and uh, the, the, the schooling, if you will, in the, 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 in the, the schooling of, of suffering and of, of hardship and of turmoil to really build the, the character that would serve him well as king and as the Lord's anointed. Nevertheless, he's asking why. What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan seems a bit naive in his response. Look at verse 2. He said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So Jonathan still thinks, hey, since I'm, you know, the, the crown prince and next in line for the throne, uh, my dad trusts me. Of course, he would tell me whatever is on his mind. David recognizes some naivete, perhaps, and uh, maybe you're not giving Saul the credit that he deserves in terms of his animosity toward David. And so he calls him out in verse 3. David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So David says, Saul is no dummy. Saul recognizes that you and I are close. He doesn't know about the covenant that Jonathan's made with David, but he certainly sees that Jonathan uh, uh, loves David and, and is loyal to David and has obviously spoken up for David uh, to Saul at the beginning of chapter 19. And so David perceives that Saul is probably thinking, I'm not going to let Jonathan in on my next plan because I don't want him to mess it up. And so Jonathan says, Whatever you want, I will do it, right? And so he says, David brings up uh, this, this new moon festival, which basically is a monthly dinner, all right? So the new moon is the start of a new month, and so they have the court all gathered together, and they have the celebratory meal. And so he says, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. So this feast would last several days. And he's saying, I'm going to go hide for the first three days of this meeting. Verse 6, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. So they've got a kind of a secret plan here. I'm going to be hiding. If Saul doesn't miss me, then no big deal. But if he ever turns to you and says, where's David? Then say, he asked me to let him go to Bethlehem to make this sacrifice. So kind of telling this story on his behalf. And if he says, verse 7, if he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. And I think most of this is for Jonathan's benefit. Because I think at this point, David already knows. David had four separate encounters in chapter 19 of Saul directly, or at least in, with his policemen, trying to capture and kill David. So I think he knows, but Jonathan seems to be a little bit slower to believe that Saul is really actually going to do this. And so I think in some ways David is kind of trying to prove to Jonathan it's not as good as you think it is. 
And so he says, you know, I'll be hiding and you tell that story. Verse 8, therefore deal kindly with your servant. Again, David recognizing himself as the, the lesser in this relationship, calling himself your servant. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? It's like, if I'm actually guilty and I deserve to die, just get it over with, right? This will be much easier if you would just strike me down right now. I think there's a real humility and kind of earnestness on David's part to really want to do the right thing, to really want to please God. And if I have done something that's worthy of death, then let's just get it over with. Let's save Saul the trouble and do it right now. Of course, Jonathan says, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? In other words, if he's like, where is David? And Jonathan gives his story and Saul's not happy with that story. Uh, how am I going to know that? Jonathan says, come, let's go out into the field. And so they both went out into the field. Jonathan has an idea. All right, here's how we're going to work this out. So the, the first thing that Jonathan does when they go out into the field here, instead of getting right into the details of the plan, here's how I'll communicate with you, is to renew his covenant, to, to renew his commitment to David. And he asks David to remember him favorably when and if his kingdom should arrive. Look at verse uh, 12. Jonathan said to David, the Lord the God of Israel be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. Okay, so he's just swearing. I will tell you the truth so that you can be safe. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan seems to be aware that David has a special place. Whether he recognizes or not that David is going to be the king, it's a little bit hard to say at this point. We haven't been told outright. But he seems to recognize that David is a special servant of God and God has uh, a, a particular role for him to play. So let David uh, deal kindly and show steadfast love to me and my house, that is all of his family, uh, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So once again, there's this renewal of covenant and this commitment to one another. Whichever of us is in a position to do good to the other, let him do it as the Lord lives. Like those are statements like God is witness. He sees that we're making this, this bond, this covenant with one another. And so now Jonathan goes on and makes this plan. Basically, he's going to have David hiding behind a bush. Again, he hid behind a bush last week, didn't he? He's going to have David hiding behind the bush. He actually says, let's go to the same field, right? Tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand. So we're talking about the very same spot where he had hidden what, when Jonathan confronted Saul in chapter 19. Remain beside the stone heap. I will shoot three arrows to the side 
as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so the plan is basically probably, probably to avoid, like if, there, if Saul has people watching Jonathan, especially if he's walking out alone somewhere and Saul knows that he's, you know, uh, making plans with David or whatever, trying to protect him, Saul's probably got an eye on him. So lest he go out into a field alone and then just like be seen out in the open talking to David, he has this, uh, this, this plan. I'll go out with a boy, a servant, and I'll have my bow and arrow, and I'll just be shooting, which is probably something he does all the time, just target practice, and then sending a boy to go pick up the arrows. So you're within earshot. You're back behind that bush over there. I'll shoot the arrow. And if I say, hey, it's right here. Go grab it and come back, then I'm basically saying to you, it's all, the coast is clear. You can stay. But if I shoot it far and then t tell the boy, the arrow is beyond you, go get it. What I'm really saying is to David, get out of here. It's not safe for you, right? So it's kind of the secret message. To anybody who's watching, this looks like Jonathan's doing arrow you know, target practice, and he's got a servant running for arrows. But of course, between Jonathan and David, they know that there's this secret communication going on that will let him know either seems to be safe and you can remain or get out of dodge, all right? So that's what they set up. And then he again reminds him of this covenant. As I have spoken, uh, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so now Jonathan is going to test Saul's intentions. So David hid himself, verse 24. David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite. And Abner, remember that's Saul's brother, sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day. Remember, there's multiple days of this feast. On the first day, he doesn't say anything, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So he's thinking maybe he was fighting with, some, with an enemy or he came in contact with a wild animal or something, and so he's just ceremonially unclean and not allowed to be uh, at the court uh, around the, 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 the ritual food, right? And so surely he'll show up tomorrow. He's just waiting for the next day to where he'll be clean and he can come. So he doesn't say anything day one. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, sure enough, here we go. Why has the son of Jesse, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So then Jonathan tells him the story. Well, David asked me to let him go to Bethlehem to make sacrifice um, and he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let me go and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the table. Look at verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. It's interesting. You expect him to be immediately angry with David. But his anger first is at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. So he recognizes immediately what's going on. Saul's no idiot. Saul recognizes Jonathan is helping David. And, and he says, you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame. 
to your mother's shame. Like you brought disgrace on our family by choosing loyalty to David instead of to me. And then he makes a statement that is staggering in its audacity, in its underestimating of God, and its absurdity, really. In verse 31, he says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. The reason that is so staggering to me is that it reveals how little Saul seems to really understand or believe about what God has clearly said to him. Back in chapter 15, God said, you are rejected from the kingship, right? The kingdom is not yours anymore. So he's still on the throne. He still recognizes the king. We're in this transition period. And Saul seems to think, well, I guess he didn't take it away after all. Or God really didn't mean what he said. Because he thinks that the only reason his kingdom is at risk is because of David, right? David is successful. David is popular. He seems utterly blind to God's judgment in his own life. Unrepentant regarding his own patterns of pride and neglect of God's word that ended his kingdom in the first place. Over and over, God had said, wait for the prophet, do things by my word, don't offer the sacrifice until Samuel shows up, etc. And Saul just kept going, no, I'm going to do things my own way. I don't feel the need to wait for God. I don't feel the need to submit myself to the word of God. And so eventually... God said, that's enough. I'm removing the kingdom from you. And that is his judgment upon Saul. And Saul has the audacity to say, as long as the son of Jesse lives, you or your kingdom will not be established. As if Jonathan and his kingdom have any chance to be established. God has already spoken. God has already delivered this judgment. Jonathan will never be king. Not because of anything that Jonathan's done, but because of Saul's disobedience and rejection of God's word. And yet Saul thinks if we can just kill the anointed one of God, then it'll all stay the way it is. And I can pass my, my kingdom on to my son, Jonathan. It's, it's utter like denial of reality. And it stems from this blindness to his own sin, his, his, his neglect of God's judgment. Maybe just disbelief. Maybe he just doesn't believe what God said. God said he's going to end my kingdom, but I don't see it. I think I'm going to keep it. And if, you want, thinks, if God thinks he's going to raise up somebody to be the new king, guess what? I'm going to kill him. I'll still be the king. I'll just keep doing that as long as it takes. Maybe that's what's in Saul's mind. He thinks he can somehow reverse God's judgment or thwart God's plans just by killing his anointed. As though, A, God couldn't just protect his anointed, which he's already been doing for quite a bit here, or that he couldn't just anoint somebody else if Saul did succeed in killing one. It's not like God's plan is going to be thwarted somehow by Saul's, I don't know, ingenuity or rage or whatever. Like, in a battle between God and Saul, who do you think is going to win? But Saul is totally blind to that. And I think there's a caution for us here not to turn a blind eye to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we read God's word and we, we feel pierced at the level of conscience 
of sin, of wrongdoing, of, of uncleanness or impurity before God, don't turn a blind eye to that. Don't, don't, don't explain it away. Don't turn a blind ear or a deaf ear to the correction of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other in the church for this very reason. Just like Jonathan went to Saul, said that you're in sin to do this. We need that, that, that word of exhortation and admonition from brothers and sisters who love us and are committed to us and who want to help us to grow in godliness. But if we just do this and we just don't listen when a, a fellow Christian comes to us with a word of correction, we just, we just continue, we perpetuate this blindness and, and, and this road that leads to nowhere good. Blindness to our sin leads to foolish neglect of God's word, which we've seen in Saul. And a downward spiral toward arrogance and selfishness and divisiveness, ultimately. It's a dangerous road. And Saul is traveling it at full speed. Let's not follow his example. So Jonathan again questions Saul. So David, Saul has said, as long as the son of Jesse lives, you and your kingdom will not be established. So bring him here and, let, and he will die. In verse 32, then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And so now he's basically asking David's question. This chapter opened with David asking Jonathan that. Why is he seeking to kill me? And so Jonathan puts that to Saul directly. What has he done? Why are you trying to kill him? Of course, Saul had really just revealed why, right? I'm trying to protect my kingdom. I'm trying to protect your kingdom, Jonathan. I'm looking out for you. I'm trying to kill David because he's going to get your kingdom if he's still alive. As long as he's alive on the earth, your kingdom will not be established. Jonathan doesn't hear that, doesn't see that, doesn't care. I don't think Jonathan is... We, we've seen enough of Jonathan to know he's not power hungry. He's not like, when do I get the kingdom, right? So he's like, why should he be put to death? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. There's Saul with the spear again. There's always a spear handy when he's angry. And he chucks it at his own son to attempt to kill him in just a blind, bitter rage. So look at this line. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Yeah, that's a fair conclusion. Actually, he might be trying to put me to death too. I might wonder that if I were Jonathan. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And even there, Jonathan's anger towards Saul is not at his own dishonor. It's not, how dare you throw a spear at me? It's, how dare you dishonor the anointed of God by setting out to kill him? Jonathan's such a, an example of just faithful, God-honoring love and commitment here. So now, Jonathan's going to go out into the field, and he's got to let David know, all right? <laughs> Things did not go so well. Saul clearly has made his intentions known. And so in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy, just a servant who he's going to have grab his arrows. And as arranged uh, with, with David, so David, we assume, is hiding in, uh, behind the bush, and Jonathan shoots the arrows a long way off, beyond the boy, right? Because we've learned he needs to get out. And so he shoots the arrows a long way off, and he calls to the boy, hurry, be quick, the arrows are 
beyond you. Do not stay, he said. Down in verse 38, Jonathan called after the boy. Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. So in other words, their plan, kind of secret communication worked. The boy didn't suspect anything. Uh, but David gets the message. I got to get out of here. And as soon as the boy had gone, oh, excuse me, uh, verse 40, Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And so the boy takes his bow and arrow and runs back to the city with his stuff. In verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Interesting little detail. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So David is a fugitive from the law, if you will, through no wrongdoing of his own, but he's on the run. So there's a couple of things here in this story that I think we can glean, that we can learn about the ways of God and, and, and how we can follow him. The first thing is to recognize that God's at work, but he's not on your timeline. God's at work, but he's not on your timeline. You've got to ask as you're reading through this, this story, how long will he let this mess with Saul continue? Would have been so much easier and cleaner and healthier for Saul to just step aside and David to take his place on the throne. Like, why is this still going on? Why is the rejected king still in power and the newly anointed man of God a fugitive? It, does, it, it almost drives you crazy. Like, you just go, Saul, just get out of the way. Why do the wicked prosper? It's the way that some of the Psalms ask the question. And I think we can feel that same way at times as we look at our own lives and the world around us and we think about what God is doing, the kingdom that he's building. When will things be set right? Why does God wait so long to punish wickedness and to let righteousness reign? It seemed through chapters 16 to 18 that David's rise would result in Saul's dethroning and David's ascent to power. And now the anointed is on the run as a fugitive from the law. It seems hopeless, like the kingdom will never come. But God is building his kingdom. God has not forsaken his anointed. God has not forsaken his people. He's working to build and establish the throne and kingdom of David. That moment will come. And he will make a promise with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that someone from David's family would sit on the throne forever. So God's work is not done. God has not forgotten his promise. He's just not on everyone else's timeline. David might be thinking, how long do I got to be on the run here? Can't you just like let Saul keel over and die so that I can go back and be the king like you've told me I will be? God is at work. He's just not on our timeline. There's always hope 
in the midst of darkness and brokenness. It might seem at times like God's plan is failing. We're waiting for the kingdom and it never seems to get here. But we know that God is God has not forgotten. We know that God is working. And so we wait with faith and with anticipation and we trust God. You know, maybe in your uh, in your you're in a fight against your own indwelling sin. And you think, why hasn't God given me victory over this yet? Surely he wants me to defeat sin. Where is he? Why am I still struggling with this? Why can't these desires just go away? Right? You ever thought something like that? Don't despair. Just because God isn't working on your timeline doesn't mean God isn't working. We know there's a day in his presence when sin will be gone. We will no longer struggle with indwelling sin. But we got plenty of time between now and then to wrestle and to struggle and to suffer and to be reminded of our own weakness and, and, and frailty and, and brokenness. God is at work. He hasn't forgotten you. He's just not on your timeline. Remember the verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8? It says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If it seems like God is taking his sweet old time and establishing his kingdom, you ever think like, just return already. It's such a mess. The world is so broken and there's so much hatred and violence and sin and wickedness. Just come back and start your kingdom now. So we might think God is slow. right? God is sluggish. But he says, no, no. God, God is not slow concerning his promise, as some of you think about slowness like this. What the Lord is, is patient. He's patient toward you. Yeah, he hasn't brought his kingdom yet. He hasn't swooped in and set everything right. But take that as a mark of God's patience with you in your own journey toward him, your own journey of faith, in your own battle against sin. It's not over yet because God is still working. God is patient with you, wanting all to come to repentance. So God is always at work. He's just not on your timeline. The second thing I think we can see from this chapter is the importance of, of covenant. And it's, it's an old word and an old concept and really our lives, except for a few ways, don't really bump into the, the, the idea of covenant very often. But we have a really good picture here uh, in Jonathan's covenant faithfulness to David. At great cost to himself where it demonstrates to us like a kingdom-shaped set of priorities, really. Jonathan risks his relationship with his father. He risks his own kingdom, which, of course, we know God's already rejected Saul's family from the throne, but he doesn't know all that. Even his very safety, at this point, he's got spears hurtling, hurtling at him, too. And it shows us a kingdom-shaped set of priorities. Ralph, David, Ralph, excuse me, Dale Ralph Davis says this, Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom was Yahweh's and therefore David's. So his life did not need to be centered in his ambition, but in God's providence. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. 
That is the way that Christians ought to live. We're not about ambition and goal setting and achieving all the hopes and dreams that we've ever had for ourselves. We are about making and keeping promises. Promises at the, the heart of Christianity. Yes, we make promises to God, right? We vow we're, we're going to follow you. We're going to live for you. But even more important than that is his promise to us in Jesus Christ to never let us go. Like Jesus said to his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like Jude says at the very end of his little letter, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless in his presence with great joy. God has made promises to us. He will never let us go. We are always in his hand. He will be faithful to us. So promise, covenant is right at the center of what it means to live as a Christian. And there are, there are a few ways, I think, that, that we do have covenant sort of woven into our lives. One of those that we're familiar with is, is a covenant of marriage. And everybody is not married, so that doesn't apply to every single person. But the covenant of marriage is one that we're familiar with. We see it all around us. And, and it is a, a, a promise it, it, when we enter into a, a covenant relationship with one another in marriage. We, we promise one another. Right? Husband and wife assure each other, I will remain faithful, loyal, committed, devoted. There will, I will yield myself at great cost for your good. And both parties are, are making this agreement with one another. So we understand something of covenant because we understand something of marriage and what that means. We have a covenant of church membership. That, that's that's what, uh, what church membership really is. It, it's Christians saying to one another, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. I'm, I'm taking responsibility for you. Right? But yeah, we're still a part of the wider body of Christ, and there are Christians that go to other churches or live in other parts of the world, and we're still connected in, in, in faith with, with those people. But in, within a local church, as covenant members, we're saying we take responsibility at a unique level and in a unique way to these particular Christians. Your commitment to Christian down the street is not the same as your commitment to a Christian within your own local church. So we have this, this covenant relationship where we, where we take responsibility for each other and we yield ourselves to one another in commitment. And Jonathan and David, again, give us a good picture of that. And then finally, as I've already mentioned, but the most important covenant in our lives is salvation in Christ. God has entered into covenant with us. Again, the greater bringing the lesser into covenant with himself by saying, you are mine and I am committed to you and I will uphold your life and your salvation. When you think of the covenant here between David and Jonathan and the situation, Jonathan's farewell seems absurd on the surface. Because what he says to David in verse 42 is, Go in peace. Excuse me, peace? Where is there peace in this situation? David is on the run because the king seeks his life. Where is peace? The king has sent all his men on a search and destroy mission to find and kill David. The very conditions in which David and Jonathan are parting are those of danger and secrecy. So how could he possibly say, go in peace? 
because of their covenant with each other. Look what he says. Go in peace because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So the peace comes from the covenant in the name of the Lord. Yes, all around is chaos. Yes, God's kingdom looks far away. Yes, the plan seems to be eroding on all sides. But God looks upon our commitment to his kingdom and to his anointed with blessing and favor. In the midst of incredible trouble and trial, God's covenant with you in Jesus Christ offers an anchor of peace when all around gives way. We sing that, that old hymn, the solid rock that says, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my help and stay. That is the covenant that he's made with us. And so, yes, it's in the midst of chaos. Yeah, the world around is a broken mess. Yes, sometimes it's in our own lives, in our own hearts, and the sins we struggle with, and we feel the relational brokenness that comes, and, and we suffer in these ways. And so it seems all crazy and chaotic and war zone-like. But there's a word of peace that Jesus offers in the midst of it. In this world you will have trouble, but I give you my peace, right? To quote Davis one more time as we conclude, he says, Biblical peace is not often a general tranquility, but rather a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. The Christian then does not, does not have peace because things are peaceful. He has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to him. If you doubt that, you've not been listening at the Lord's Supper. The cup, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. It is the covenant bond of that unforsaking friend that speaks peace in our disappointments, dangers, and even disasters. Praise God for his covenant faithfulness to us. Let's pray.